or a lake where you've sunk down through the depths of the water and, and you go down deeper than you thought possible into the muck, into the mire. Yet, yet you still sink even deeper and you, you find this sandy bottom. Yet you're still not there. You sink even deeper down until finally you've hit rock bottom. You're at the very depths, right? You can't go any further. And we use this phrase, hitting rock bottom, to capture this spiral where we've gone so much lower than we thought possible. Our circumstances are more dreaded than we could even have imagined. We've hit rock bottom. So I went down for a while, maybe bounced from one ledge to another, thought I was in the worst place, but no, there's still farther to go, right? Then I hit a couple more ledges, kept sinking through more mire, more sand, yet there was still farther to go. Until finally you arrive in this place where you think, surely, surely, I've hit rock bottom, right? This horror, that place of such despair that people find themselves in. And this, I think, captures also the life of David through 1 Samuel. That he today, as we're going to look at, hits rock bottom. And he started out in such an amazing and promising place that he's God's anointed He's this amazing hero fighting Israel's battles. He's the king's son-in-law. He's a commander in the army. Everybody loves David. It could not be better for him. But then things switch, and the king, Saul, becomes jealous and afraid of David, begins to unjustly seek his life relentlessly again and again and again. For chapters, we've been sitting in this pursuit And David is betrayed, not once, but twice. It's just miserable, living from cave to wilderness to cave, all of this confusion that David is in. But today, again, we're going to look where I think David arrives at rock bottom. And I hope this deeply encourages you, King's Cross, because our goal this morning is not to look at what rock bottom feels like. You might know that all too well already. Our goal here this morning is what do you do when you're in this place of despair and feeling like you could not sink any deeper? Where do you find strength when you're in this place? So I encourage you, open up with me to the book of 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible, please do so. We're going to be covering a lot of ground today. We're going to start in chapter 27. We're going to jump over chapter 28 and then look at chapters 29 and 30. This is beautiful ending to 1 Samuel where Saul and David, their stories are intertwined, but we're going to pull them apart these next two weeks. Look first at David finishing up his life, and then next week we're going to finish our series on 1 Samuel looking at the end of Saul's life. So it begins here, chapter one of, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 27 says this. I have it on a screen for you as well. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do to escape uh, to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Here at the very beginning says, David thought to himself. Other translations can put this as, David spoke to his heart. He's speaking to his own inner being. He's speaking to himself, preaching to himself, if you will. 
And what David is saying is not life and confidence. He's not saying, the Lord has watched over your life this far, David. He's going to continue to be faithful to you. No, what David speaks to his own heart is defeat and hopelessness. He says, surely Saul will capture me one of these days. And so he's speaking despair to himself. And we're going to see that this statement that David is speaking to himself is going to lead him to make decisions of compromise. Because he's been speaking this kind of despair and hopelessness to his own heart, it's going to lead him to make decisions that he might not otherwise have made. I'm I'm immediately helped by this. That all of us are speaking something to our hearts throughout every week. You, you all preach sermons to yourself every week, but what are we preaching to ourselves and reminding our hearts? And we can get into this place where we look, I, I can never make this happen. I'm never going to get out of this place. This person will always treat me this way. God's failed me before, God will fail me again. And you start to speak these truths to yourself, and it demoralizes you. And so often, the compromise and sin in our lives starts from what we're speaking to our hearts. What we're saying to ourselves, these sermons that we preach. So call to mind with me, what are you speaking to your own heart every week? When no one's looking, in the quiet of your day, maybe driving to work, or when you go to bed at night, what is it that comes to mind that you say to yourself? We're speaking something. Is it half-truths or hard-truths? Is it this gospel or is it a reminder of your own failure? Is it despair and things will get worse or is it a reminder of how faithful God has already been? You are shaping your heart every week. So again, because of what David speaks to himself, he starts to make these decisions of compromise. It's important to notice that the book of 1 Samuel is not trying to give us an ideal picture of David. This is not a manifesto of why David is the best king possible. Rather, 1 Samuel unflinchingly looks at the heights and the depths of David's character so that we could see that the true hero in his story is God's grace, not him. Can I say that again? This book unflinchingly looks at David's great character and his flaws so we could see that the true hero here is God's faithfulness and kindness to David. That's why his life is changed. And so it's going to be very honest about failure in David's life. And so let's just look at three of the mistakes that he's making in this chapter that it shows us. Again, it wants to be honest about him. First of all, David takes his 600 men with him out of the land of Judah and into the care of Achish, who is king of Gath over the Philistines. This might ring a bell because David fled here earlier in 1 Samuel. He fled to King Achish, and he acted insane when he realized the Philistines were probably going to kill him. So he tried to act insane, and Achish is like, I have enough insane people around me already. Get this guy out of my presence. Do you remember that, right? So now here later, David is back again, yet this time he's a far more valuable servant to Achish. He's got 600 men with him, but he's back 
in the land of the Philistines. This should shock us a bit because these are Israel's enemies. These are the ones who have been demoralizing and oppressing and killing them for decades. So now David, the promised future king of Israel, is now living among Israel's enemies, serving them. This should shock us. Why would he make this kind of decision? It seems that maybe there's some compromise here, hopelessness. This should also make us wonder, is, is David giving up on God and his promises? He's going to a foreign land to serve a foreign king who serves a foreign god. Is he giving up on Yahweh, the king of the universe? Is he looking for another refuge? It should make us wonder. So first mistake, he's living among the Philistines. Secondly, we hear that David's family is already coming into disorder. Says that he has two wives. So the first is Ahinoam of Jezreel, and the second is Abigail, the widow of Nabal that we looked at several weeks before. And it mentioned this earlier in the story of 1 Samuel. Didn't draw that out then, but you might have wondered, man, David has two wives. What's going on here? This is not condoned behavior in Scripture. This is not okay. David should have known what the law says, that a man shall leave his father and mother, and he will become united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Not three or four become one flesh, right? It's the two will become one flesh. David should know this, but he's already living in different ways like the nations around him. And I, I love how these stories work in 1 Samuel because they don't explicitly condemn behaviors all the time. They don't just insert a note and just say, this was really bad by David. Instead, it shows us the foolishness or wisdom of a decision as the story goes on. So if you kept reading through 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, you'll see that eventually in David's life, his family is absolutely falling apart. He has one half-brother who horrifically rapes a half-sister. One brother kills another brother. And that one brother now tries to take David's throne. His family is a mess. And so Samuel's trying to teach us in these books, look where this all begins with David making compromise in his marriage and his family. It's trying to show us the foolishness. Second mistake. Thirdly here, as he's living among the Philistines, David asks to live in a country town called Ziklag. Rather than living in the capital, Gath, where Akish lives, he says, give me another town for me and my men. What's the big, big deal about this? We love living in country towns, right? Rice County, this is a great place to be. This is a good idea by David to live in Ziklag. What could be wrong with that? As the story goes on, it shows that David is trying to hide his behavior. See, he says to Akish that he's attacking Judah and Israel, his own people. But actually, what David was doing is he was going to other areas and attacking Israel's enemies, like the Amalekites. And brutally, he would kill all the men and women, everybody. There would be no survivors so that the word would not get back to Akish of what he was really doing. So he's lying to him about his behavior and also turning into a brutal warlord. Do you see how David needs grace? Do you see how he's not the hero of the story? That he needs a God who's going to intervene in his life, who's full of compassion and faithfulness and kindness? 
And David's messing up his life. He's turning into a person that God has not designed him to be, and he needs a savior. He's not the savior. He needs one. So do I. That's why these stories speak such life. But yet David has still not reached rock bottom. There's further spiraling for him to do. As he's living among the Philistines, it comes that they all look to gather this massive army to attack Israel. All the Philistine commanders get together along with Achish, and they say, we are going to attack Israel. So David, as Achish's servant, is told to come along into fighting his own people. This had to be a worst-case scenario for David. This is his nightmare. Because if he says yes and joins this massive army, he's going to be fighting against and killing his own people. Just say goodbye to ever being king like God promised David if you join in this battle. It's hopeless for you. But on the other hand, if he says no, his whole lie is exposed. His ruse is up. It's going to be clear that he's not really here to be a servant of Achish and the Philistines. He has his own agenda. What is David going to do? Maybe to save face and to buy time, David says yes to going to this battle. Even with some bravado, he says, you will see what your servant can do. He's going to fight and he's going to serve Achish. But as they march on this three-day journey up to this battle site in northern Israel, as they're long on this journey, the other Philistine commanders realize there's David and 600 Israelites marching with them. And they say to Achish, are you crazy? We are about to go into a battle against Israelites, and you think it's a good idea to have 600 of them in our rear? If David wanted to regain Saul's favor, what better way to do this than sticking a knife in our back, turning against us in the middle of this battle? Like, Kish, you've lost your mind. On top of this, they know the song that's gained all this popularity about David. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. They know the song lyric too. And they're like, and you have this David marching behind us? This makes no sense. So they tell Akish he needs to send David home. I just want you to see this ironically. Akish defends David. He says he's like an angel to me. He's such a faithful servant. I found no blemish in him the whole year and four months that he's been living around me. David is a faultless servant. So, so ironically, Akish who's a king over his enemies, has more trust and confidence in David than Saul does. And although Achish has reasons to doubt and question David, he still trusts him. And although Saul had none, he still sought his life for years. The irony in this moment. Achish goes to David, breaks the news to him, sorry David, you need to walk back home three days, you can't go with us into this battle. We don't know what David's thinking in this moment. In the text, he sounds very disappointed. Like, what wrong have you found in your servant that I can't go with you into this battle? But we don't know what he's thinking. Is he actually disappointed that he can't serve Akish? Has there become some bond there? Has he actually given up on his own people? Is he hiding that way and acting one way, but secretly is 
deeply relieved that he's able to go home and is out of this pressure cooker situation. Or maybe he's disappointed because he was looking to attack in the rear and flip this battle on its head. We, we don't know. We don't know what David is thinking. The text does not tell us, but I think the text does want us to see this is another moment of God sovereignly leading David's life. That God is moving and restricting and guiding David here. Although David, through his own decisions, has landed himself in a mess, God again intervenes with his restrictive guidance to get him out of this situation. This helps me again. It might not feel like God is leading your life or aware of your situation. Maybe you're just getting closed door after closed door, but as a good friend of mine puts it, God's restrictive guidance is still guidance. His nose to you and shutting a door is still kindness in leading your life. So don't be put off maybe by some no's in your life and doors that are closed. God is still sovereign and is able to lead and shepherd your life, getting you out of messes. Yet still, David's not at rock bottom. We have further to go. As David marches home with his men, that three-day journey back to their hometown of Ziklag, they discover their worst nightmare. They discover that the Amalekites have come and raided that area, and they have burned their home of Ziklag. More than that, they have kidnapped all of their families. Every wife, son, daughter is gone. What a horrible moment. This is a nightmare of nightmares. And David's family is taken too. This is a worst case scenario even farther, because in this day, if you're kidnapped like this, you're sent into a life of slavery and horrific circumstances. So David and the 600 men with him are instantly plunged into grief because they realize what's about to happen to their families. And although David's men have been faithful to him for years, living from cave to wilderness, betrayal to betrayal, even moving amongst their own enemies, they've still been faithful. Now, with this, the family's gone and the city burned, they're ready to kill David. They're, they're ready to pick up stones to kill him. This is a rock-bottom moment for David. And you need to see, hear me, all of 1 Samuel has been building up to this moment. Test after test for David. Him living among sheep as a shepherd, facing a lion and a bear, having to trust that God is able to deliver him. Facing Goliath, having to trust God is able to deliver him. Facing Saul, chasing him through the wilderness for years, trusting that God is able to deliver him again and again, test after test. He's seen God's faithfulness and is now landing in this rock-bottom awful moment. Has he been trained to see that even though I'm in this horrible situation, I still have seen how God is able to save me? You need to sit with me, though, on how hard this had to be. If you're David, and you're a teenager, and God comes in your life, anoints you, and says you will one day be king, and then the trajectory of your life from there just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. You're driven from your family. You're on the run for years. At some point, wouldn't you think, God, are you, are you even loving at all? 
that, that here I am, surrounded by my own men I've been leading for years that want to kill me. My family has been kidnapped. My city burned. I'm living in a foreign country because I'm sought out on my own. At some point, don't you feel like David is just angry at God? Yahweh, are you even worth trusting? Do you really see my life? Is this the expression of your love? for your anointed, that you would lead me into this kind of situation. How angry must David's heart be? I think God is leading David to a cliff of faith, really pressing into his heart. Will you trust me, David? Even though it looks like I'm against you, the entire world is against you, will you trust me? And you know God never asks this question in the easy places. It's always when you're overwhelmed with confusion. Just sheer like, God, what in the world are you doing in my life? When things have been painful, not for weeks, but for years, saying, God, can I trust you? Are you genuinely the loving God that everyone says that you are? When you've been stuck in this place, this is when that question comes. Will you really trust me? David, are you going to be another king like Saul that is only in this for what he can get from me? Are you in this because you're truly after my heart? What if, David, the only thing you get from me is suffering and betrayal and difficulty? What then, David? Will you still seek my face? Will I still be the treasure of your life? Or were you in this in the first place only because of what you could get from me? I'm not your treasure. I'm a means to it. Don't our hearts need this kind of question? And how do we really get there except in moments of suffering like this when God is saying, who do you think I really am? Not when it's easy, but when it's tremendously difficult. Where will you go? What will you trust? How will David respond? How will you respond? See how David acts here in chapter 30, verse 6. Hear this line with me that I think 1 Samuel has been building towards. It says, David was greatly distressed. It's not an easy moment for his heart. It's trying to draw out. He's overwhelmed. Because the men were talking of stoning him, each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. Hear this. But David found strength in the Lord his God. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Sit in this with me. There are riches here. I want you to consider that although David might want to accuse God, he instead finds his strength in him. Although David might want to accuse God, he instead finds his strength in him. David does not believe Yahweh, God, is just a local deity in control of one country. David believes that God is the creator of all things. He believes that God is the maker of the one who is sovereign over all creation, that nothing is too hard for his God, nothing surprises his God. And so you'd see how with this kind of greatness, it would also be easy to point a finger at Yahweh saying, if you control all things, surely you're responsible for landing me here. I want to accuse you. Why have you put me in this kind of place? 
And this surely is how many of the Psalms speak. Yet, yet, even though he could see that God is in control and might want to accuse him, he still is refuge. Do you see this? Even though God might be the one he's angry at, he's also the one he's running to. Like, where else can I go, God? What other refuge do I have? What other place of strength and kindness is there for me to go to? I know who you are, Yahweh, and I will not go to another. Though you hurt my life, though you slay me, yet still I will come to you and make you my refuge. This is a theme not just in Samuel, but this is a theme throughout Scripture. Absolute bewilderment of God and his treatment of us, and our hearts just resiliently saying, by his grace, you are my refuge. I want to walk through this in Lamentations and how it gives us this example, again, a theme throughout Scripture of people landing in the midst of such suffering and difficulty that although they may want to accuse God, they instead find refuge in him. Look what it says here. Lamentations chapter 3 says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. See who's responsible. Lamentations is saying it's God. It's the Lord. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he, God, has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. So you need to see that this writer in Lamentations is talking about God. Look how he continues in verse 10 and 11. He says, like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he, meaning God, dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He believed that scripture describes God like a bear lying in wait, like a lion that mangles people. This is how raw scripture is being about God. Like, you, you just seem like someone who's out to kill me and hurt me. Yet, in spite of this, it doesn't stay here. Even as it pours out complaint to God, this is not where lamentations ends. Hear this in chapter 3, verse 19 and 24. Even with you, God, being the one I want to accuse, I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I remember them well. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, I say to myself, I preach to myself, I say to my heart, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. There's absolute beauty and necessity for us to pour out our complaint to God, to be raw with him, but do not stop there. Still come to God and say, I will make you my refuge. I know that you are my portion. I know that you are the one who was crucified for me. I know you are the one that was betrayed. I know you are the one that was helpless and naked and in pain and all for me. I know you are the one that took God's justice so I could take his forgiveness. I know who you are. I've seen this demonstrated for me in Jesus, so I will not run elsewhere. Let come what may, you will always be my portion. That kind of resilient, I've got my gaze set on my king, and I'm not giving up. 
God is looking for that in our hearts. It's painful. I don't always understand why, but this is how we ought to respond when we hit rock bottom. Yes, I will praise you. I swear I don't want to just sit in this idea. I, I want us to practice this. I want our hearts to actually have a moment to pour out to God and say, even though I'm really frustrated and hurt and in difficulty, yet I will praise you for your compassions never fail. I'm going to have the band come up for us to sing another song before we finish the sermon in a little bit. But I encourage you as we sing this to respond in the way that your heart is needing. And what I mean in this is that some of you need to just stay seated and be raw before God, pour out your heart before him, maybe right. Others of you are going to need to stand, right? And your body's going to need to express its worship more than hands at your side. You're going to want to reach out your hands. So I'm saying express your heart to God and freedom as you need to. Others might like, I need to leave and take a walk. I just need to be alone with God. Respond in the way that your heart needs to be honest with him and to praise him. So enter into this with us.
but I know there's also more gospel that he wants us to hear. So David, in this rock-bottom place, maybe he sings a little bit of a song like this to himself, but he finds strength in the Lord, his God. Not just a God out there, but his God. And what comes to mind is he says, bring 
Abiathar, this priest, who's carrying, if you remember, this ephod, and allows David to inquire and ask of God, and he says, God, shall I pursue this enemy? Secondly, will I overtake them at all? Blessedly, God says yes to both. Yes, seek them out, pursue, and yes, you will overtake them. He needs that confidence. So David rouses his men out of their grief, and they begin this pursuit. But it's like finding a needle in a haystack. Where have they gone? Have they gone north, south, east, west? Where have they gone? David and his men head south, and they run 12 miles, roughly, to a brook of Basor. And if you remember, David and his men, they've just come from a three-day march back home. They're already exhausted, only to be met with disaster and more exhaustion in their grief. Now, after a 12-mile or so run, they are even more tired. 200 of the men stay there with the supplies at this brook, and 400 of David's men continue on. I don't know how. God's strength, God's grace. They continue chasing, and they come across an Egyptian alone in a field. This is not normal. He seems to be on death's door. They revive him with some food and drink, and they begin to ask him, who are you? What are you doing here? This Egyptian says, I was the slave of an Amalekite, but three days ago I got sick and he abandoned me here after we, get this, just got done raiding this area and we burned the city of Ziklag. So suddenly David and his men, they realize they're headed in the right direction. More than this, because he's a slave of this Amalekite, he knows where they were headed and he's able to lead them down to where they were going. So he takes David and his men down to this plain and they see spread out over the countryside this massive Amalekite raiding party. They're drinking and reveling and partying because of all the plunder that they've just taken. It says that David and his men, they attack this raiding party at dusk and they fight through that night, through that next day. I don't know how, but incredibly, they're able to rout this enemy and hear this, recover everything that had been lost to them. It says this in chapter 30. It says, nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought back everything. Everything that had been lost, they gained back. Every son, daughter, wife, family member is returned to them. More than that, because this raiding party had not just attacked Ziklag, but many other places, the plunder they have is an overwhelming amount of wealth. David suddenly goes from nothing and being nearly stoned to full of victory and abundance. So says he takes this back and he divides it among his men fairly, but more than that, he has so much wealth, he's able to send these as gifts to various cities in Judah where he's come from, and these end up paving a way for David to become king. From disaster to suddenly being on the threshold of becoming king. This is where we're ending David's story in 1 Samuel. But I just want to wrap up here briefly. What, what do we make of this? What is God wanting us to see? I think a wrong lesson we take from this 
is what might seem obvious, that if you're in a horrible situation, give it enough time and God will make it better and bring you to this amazing place. God does that with David. We're not actually given that promise in this life, that our circumstances will suddenly change. That's not the message. I think what we're meant to see instead is there's this theme, again, throughout Scripture, of people being in such difficult, horrific places, yet God comes and delivers them at this moment, this cliff of faith, again and again. Abraham, childless for decades, wondering where God is, and God shows up to deliver him. Joseph, sold into slavery, wondering where is God? Is he working in my life? Delivered into second in the kingdom. You have David. You have have Esther again and again and again. God is rescuing people in the midst of disaster, except for one. All of this builds to Jesus, and in his rock-bottom moment, when he's crying out in the garden, there's one who's in this disastrous rock-bottom place, but there's no salvation for Jesus. There's no deliverance for Jesus. He's been betrayed by his men. He's in a place that he was not wanting. Lord, if you can make some other way, let it be. He's the one that's hanging on the cross in pain as people are shouting insults at him. He does not get deliverance. He does not receive salvation. His cries go unheard. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no reply. All of this so that you and I would be heard in our suffering. All that so you and I would not be forsaken. But we know my circumstances might be a disaster, but one thing I know, one thing I know that God, you are still with me and your love is still for me and that one day you will make all things new and that's my refuge that you've forgiven my sins and you're bringing me back into relationship with yourself. I will not be abandoned. And that's what Jesus is achieving for you and I. That's the beauty of the gospel here. There's one that was truly abandoned and it's not us. It was Jesus. I want our band to come back up. We're going to take communion together as a church.